Nearly a century ago now, the um, Nobel Prize-winning poet and playwright and Irish parliamentarian W.B. Yeats penned a very provocative lament. And his words in one part of that lament were these. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Writing these words in 1920, Yeats was looking at a European world ravaged by war. He was looking at a civilization that was in so many different places locked in cultural conflict and strife. He was looking out at a somewhat decrepit and overly institutionalized church that lacked the moral authority and leadership necessary to really contribute something meaningful to the malaise of the times in which he was living. Our problem is that the best lack all conviction, he says, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And it's promoting anarchy uh, and trouble everywhere. It strikes me that Yeats' analysis of his particular time could be applied to ours. I mean, I was reading these words this week, and I, and I just was imagining, I was seeing uh, the news through the lens of these words, and it was just hitting me. Wow. This describes us today in so many ways. We, we live in an era where some of the very best people stay out of real engagement with the major problems and needs of our times because they lack conviction about it. They're just, they're too caught up in, you know, in getting the, the text out or, or dealing with the to-do list or, or, you know, going, trying to get the next. They lack the conviction somehow to contribute to the solution of some of the really big problems in our homes, in our cities, in, in, in the poverty-stricken parts of the world. Too many lack the conviction needed. Too much passivity reigns. And on the other side, those who are actively engaged in the great debates and the struggles of our time often seem to exhibit too little civility or, or too much aggressiveness in, in their approach towards other in the pursuit of their sometimes very good ends. Do any of you see this? you ever experience this as you look around today? And the result, I think, is rising anarchy. We, we, we don't seem to form a consensus. We don't seem to be able to find a way of, uh, of getting together and solving the, the significant problems or grabbing the great opportunities of our, of our time. I, I caught a glimpse of this uh, over at the golf driving range on Monday. It was my day off. I went out to the driving range. Um, and I'm in, the, um, I'm in the, the golf shop getting my bucket of balls. And... Um, over the news uh, comes the report that uh, a certain politician, former governor of our state who shall not be named, had just been convicted of like, you know, bazillions of counts of corruption. 
And I just spontaneously erupt, somewhat triumphantly, it's about time. When from behind me comes this equally intense voice, that's a load of bull. He got a raw deal. And and I wheel around, and I look into the face of this guy, right? And he's looking pretty concerned, you know, and he's looking at me. And, um, and, and I can tell just from everything about this guy's affect, his appearance, his dress, that we are from very different cultural worldviews, okay? We come from really different backgrounds and experiences from one another. That, that was very, very obvious. And there's this moment of awkward silence between us. And then being the pastor that I am, I think to myself, I wonder if I should punch this guy out. (laughs) I think, yeah, he's a little shorter, a little older than I am. I could definitely take him. And, And for like a nanosecond, you know, it seems a very real possibility that we are going to work out our cultural differences right there on the floor between the demo golf clubs and the Coke machine, right? But instead, we just glare at each other, and each of us turns around and walks away, giving up the other person as basically hopelessly lost. Think how many places that kind of interaction is going on. Although sometimes it winds up on the floor (laughs) next to the demo clubs, you know. We live in this, this anxious time where we struggle somehow to find um, a healthy way between seething aggression on the one side and kind of resigned passivity on the other side. We just can't seem to find, it seems sometimes, that creative uh, middle way when it comes to working out uh, our differences. Martin Marty, who's a, a wonderful personality, you, some of you have met him, he's been in the pulpit here, University of Chicago historian, National Book Award winner, very wise man observes that that one of the most pressing problems in America today is that people who are good at being civil often lack strong convictions, while people who have strong convictions often lack civility. And, And if you read the Bible, and if the vision of life that God gives to us there is important to you, then you know that somehow these two things have to get blended more. Uh, On the one hand, the Bible is really clear that followers of Jesus are supposed to live with conviction, uh, with what I will call holy conviction. Um, Hebrews 12, read a moment ago, in verse 14, reads as follows. Make every effort to be holy. 
the writer says. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now think about this with me. To be holy is to be pure, distinct, different. It is to be dedicated to the purposes of God. That's what holiness is in a sense is. In fact, you'll see me sometimes. I'll pray over this water right over here, and I'll say, set apart this water from all common uses to the sacred use and mystery for which you have appointed it before I baptize a child. It's water. It's being dedicated. It's being made holy to the purposes of God, and our lives are meant to be like this. You were baptized to be dedicated to the purposes of our God. And, um, and I hope you're still wet behind the ears with that sense. Pursuing holiness is our call. And, and it takes the courage of conviction to, to live in the distinct way that God calls us to live in the midst of a world that's always calling us to sort of blend in with the culture of, of the time. Being holy means daring to say sometimes, I, I, I believe this moral choice here, in front of me or in front of our world, this use of resources, this policy out there, or this practice that I'm tempted to engage in, I believe that it lines up with God's Word and with what He wants life to be about for people. I believe it lines up with God's blessed intentions for human life, or else I think it does not. It, it, it just doesn't. It fails that test. And therefore, this policy or this practice or this moral choice, it needs changing. That's conviction. It, it, pursuing holiness means working for changes. It means actually submitting to changes in our own lives. Uh, even though doing this may not be economically easy, it may not be politically correct. It may not be personally convenient to do so. But we do so because it advances king, the kingdom of God. Um, that's what it means to be holy. If God's people, think about this part, if God's people do not hold clear convictions about what is holy, what is true, if God's people don't work to communicate, to organize, to fund, and to enflesh those convictions in the patterns of their family, in, in, in the way they do their employment, in the way they handle their money, in the way they uh, interact with people socially, in the way they carry out their politics. If God's people don't, don't do this, then no one will see the Lord, the Hebrews writer says. Because... Living with holy conviction, being different, distinct, set apart, dedicated to God's purposes is one of the ways that we help the world see the character of God in technicolor, 3D, and, and begin seeing the beauty of that and the goodness of that to long to enter themselves into that kingdom more fully. Now, it's been my experience that, that in trying to do this, Individual Christian people will not always agree over which particular measures best express the character of God and advance his kingdom. 
That's why not every um, person in the room will vote for the same political candidates, for example, or um, agree with the same policy. But this is what I really want to underline. If we're reading the same Bible, you know, if we're studying the same scriptures, we ought to be largely unified about certain major values. Um, and, and let me just try and describe that, if I may, in terms of some purposeful tensions uh, that I think are really declared explicitly to us in the Scriptures. For example, we know from the Scriptures that we are to be for the government. We are told in the Scriptures that we're to pray for our governmental leaders, that government, even the government we would disagree with sometimes, is God's instrument and, and Paul, go back and read Romans 12 and 13, if you, want, if you doubt me on this. God enjoins us to pray for and to support and to encourage those who are in government. And that's not just true of political government, that's true of people in, in authority in other spheres of our life as well. At the same time, God cautions us in the Scripture not to let government usurp his ultimate authority. And, and, and not to let government usurp our role as providers for one another. We don't subcontract out compassion to the government. It's something we're all meant to be about. So this is one of the creative tensions that inform our way we come at politics if we're reading this Bible. Are you with me so far? Okay. Anybody want to leave? Okay. We also know from the scriptures that to serve as a leader anywhere is a noble task. And that's a quotation from the Bible. It's a noble task. It is worth, people who are willing to step out and lead are worthy of the benefit of our doubt. They're worthy of honor. They're worthy of our encouragement. But God also says... They better keep the trust. They, they better prove themselves full of integrity. They better hold themselves to an even higher standard of that because they can't have the rewards without the responsibilities. They are to be held accountable when they fail the trust. Right? I should have said that. I should have had this conversation with my friend in the golf shop. I, I was too worked up. Um, the scriptures also strongly affirm freedom. We love freedom, don't we, as Americans? The scriptures are big backers of the idea of freedom, free will, and choice, and that is a crucial biblical value. But they also make it very clear that liberty has to be coupled with responsibility. Right? Maybe all choices are open to us. We restrain ourselves in not taking some of them in order to serve the purposes of God. That's one of the creative freedom and responsibility are one of those tensions. The Bible sanctions the use of force. That's my reading of it. I've read it from cover to cover many times searching this question out. It sanctions the use of force for the purpose of restraining evil. Um, it does. But it also calls God's people to make every possible effort 
to avoid the loss of innocent life, uh, to solve problems with force when grace and diplomacy might, might work out differently. And again, I wish I could do Bible studies with you on every one of these principles. It's just, I hope you'll trust me. The, this is the balance the Scripture sets up. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that we've been given dominion over this earth. God said, this is your, I'm letting you go have a great time in the garden. I'm giving you dominion over it. But be good stewards of that trust. Because the earth is the Lord's, the Bible says. Be careful with its resources. Right? They're on loan to you. God calls us to respect the rule of law. One of the great kind of biblical principles is that the law creates order and, and, and proper boundaries for life. We have to do that. We must respect the rule of law. And at the same time, God also asks us to show compassion towards people that sometimes cross the boundaries out of desperation or confusion. For example, aliens and refugees. The Bible is unbelievably articulate about the need to care for aliens and refugees. And how we reconcile that with the rule of law on the other side, which is also an extremely important biblical value and cultural value, is, is, is the tricky part. God is very clear in his, in his scriptures that fr, uh, able-bodied people are supposed to work to support themselves. Um, there's, a, there's a strong challenge against laziness, against freeloading in many parts uh, of the Bible, particularly the book of Proverbs. But at the same time, God also demands that provision be made for helpless people, for the ones who can't bootstrap themselves, for the ones who are crushed under oppressive uh, structures that just keep them from getting, getting up and out, even though they, they desperately long to. Uh, the Bible declares that to whom much is given, much will be expected. That those of us who have more capacity in one way or another are expected to invest that capacity uh, for kingdom purposes um, very, very generously. Uh, but at the same time, God also says that even the person who's been given just one talent has to invest it wisely too. Right? Parable of the talents. God tells us we're to honor the elderly. We're to care for the sick. We're not to forget the prisoners. We're to tend to our own household. But we are all to, also to look to the interests of others. We're to tell the truth. We're to keep our vows. We're to worship him alone. But also remember that people must freely choose him. Can you see why politics is complicated? Okay? Can you see why it's complicated even for people that really love the word? Because of these tensions. It's just hard to keep in mind all of these important values. It's, it's difficult to hold together these these creative tensions without losing our balance to one side or the other. Political parties have this tendency to sort of be all about one side or the other of those particular balances. Special interest 
groups and, and movements are all about raising one issue and making it the only issue that should be uh, getting all of the attention and resource. But as Christians, we're commissioned to be concerned for the whole agenda. Right? For God's whole agenda. Jesus said what? Teach them to obey those particular commandments that agree with their political leanings. Did he say that? (laughs) Teach them to obey those things which feel right and good to them. What did he say? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, for I am with you always to the end of the age. As Christians, somehow, we must be convicted to pursue the wide, broad, beautiful, glorious agenda of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Peter writes, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, pledge your allegiance to Christ above every other affiliation in your life. The other affiliations are great. Just make sure that Christ, the kingdom agenda, is number one for you, is what he's saying here. Set apart Christ as Lord. Make that holy in your life, he's He's saying, don't settle for a merely partisan vision of life when you've been given the vision of the kingdom of God, is what the Bible tells us. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Our nation today is looking for genuine hope, right? It is. I think we know that. And it's increasingly doubtful that that our political system is going to provide the transforming hope that we need. And because of that, you and, and I also need to talk about our convictions. Uh, we need to work to advance the full range of God's values in the public square for the very simple reason that wherever th- this beautifully creative way of of living has been uh, planted in a society, that culture has flourished. It's why this nation has flourished. These kingdom values planted deep in the soil at the start. But as we pursue these holy convictions, we must do so with humble civility. That's the, that's the second thing the Bible tells us. It is also part of the tension. Listen to the full message of the same scriptures I read to you a moment ago. In the book of Hebrews, we read, make every effort to live in peace with all men. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And then the Apostle Peter amplifies this same idea. When you are giving the reason for the hope that you have, when you're declaring your convictions, do so how? With what? Let me hear it. Gentleness Gentleness and respect. That's right. This past week, I I overheard this remarkable uh, discussion between two teenage boys, 15-year-olds. You know those, those times when a conversation is going on and you just, you are as quiet as a mouse because you just are dying to hear how this thing's going to play out? 
I was, I was in one of those situations. And uh, the two of them were debating the comparative merits of um, small business and large uh, globalizing corporate life. No kidding. This is what these two were talking about. And one of the guys was advocating for the importance of, of retaining small mom-and-pop stores that give kind of distinctive character to a community and, uh, and which uh, provide opportunity for personalized service and a kind of a human touch. And the other kid was extolling the virtues of, of major chains, and the uh, price efficiencies that would come as a result of this and the um, expanded uh, opportunities for employment that would go with globalization. I promise you this is what these guys were talking about. Maybe not in exactly the technical words I've used, but this was the gist of it, right? And as I'm listening to this conversation, I am, I'm marveling because the nature of it is, is not... Uh, a converse, it is a discussion, or should I say a percussion or a concussion. It would be better uh, applied because the conversation was much more like a battle of drum sets or a clash of football helmets than, than anything else. The boys were each bringing really important ideas to this subject. Uh, very, you know, I thought, incredibly wise observations about the nature of economy and and sociology and, and the like. They were articulating these very valid concerns uh, at one end of a vital tension or a trade-off. Each of them had obviously got deep feelings and some kind of experience that was informing the, the opinion that they had, but neither of them seemed able to hear the other person over the banging, exploding, clashing of their convictions. And neither of them walked away brighter about the subject matter because of their conversation. And I dare say, it actually drove them further apart, more polarized. Where do you think they got this? Right? Fifteen. Where do you think they learned this? This style of, of discourse. Because before they went into it, they were actually good friends. Uh, is it, did they, did they hear it on talk radio? Or the evening partisan news programs? Did they get it from, uh, did they get it from watching the way their parents interact? Uh, over hard issues? Um, was it something they picked up in their school? Is it possible they got it in every one of those places? Because this is increasingly how, in these anxiety-producing times, discourse is being handled. Those boys could generate sound and plenty of shaking of the air between them, but it was like the 4th of July fireworks without any of that beautiful light that's meant to come. And, and, and I found out this week, I did a, a word study, that the word discussion 
means something different than I, than I realized before. It comes from the Latin word uh, discutere, and it literally means, discussion means to smash or to shake apart, which is why concussion and percussion also have this sensibility. A discussion is aimed primarily at getting out what the speaker wants to say, about firing the cannonball. Um, and, and its goal is to prevail over an enemy. That's, that's discussion. There's this other way of interacting that's also possible that goes by the, the word dialogue. And dialogue comes from the Greek word dia lagos. And by the way, Lagos is the, is, is the term for the word of God or the word that became flesh uh, in the Gospel of John. Dialogos means getting truth flowing through, to get truth flowing. Dialogue aims at getting enough truth flowing through the space between people that there's possibility, possibility for new insight, for fresh perception, for a different kind of quality of partnership on solutions. It bets on this idea that even if we can't come to agreement on everything, we can still depart from the conversation seeing more common ground than we ever saw before we came in, still friends, and maybe even brighter and deeper ones at that. That's what dialogue shoots for. In his wonderful book, Uncommon Decency, Richard Mao issues this winsome call to a recovery of civility in American life. Civility, he writes, is public politeness. It it means that we display tact and moderation and refinement and good manners towards people who are different from us. Mao stresses that civility isn't play-acting, right? It's not a matter of just hiding our grudges and and grudgingly giving concessions in areas where we fundamentally, fundamentally think the other person is clueless. Um, it's not about that. It's not play-acting. It comes from a different kind of heart than that. Civility doesn't hold a relativistic view about things, that every idea or every approach is equally valid. Some ideas, some approaches are actually stupid and destructive. And maybe even some of our own ideas and actions are that more than we will ever see if we don't really deeply engage somebody who sees some other aspect of the issue. Uh, Civility requires an authentic willingness to respect somebody else, not because we believe they're right about everything, but because they are the child of the creator himself. They They are God's handiwork, even if they've forgotten that. Civility involves trying to understand what somebody thinks and feels and where that came from in them. It means seeking to perceive the pressures they feel themselves under, the experiences they've had, the real-world needs they're sensitive to, the maybe imagined demons that are haunting, uh, haunting them and driving them the way they're driven. It means listening deeply enough to them that we earn the right to have our convictions heard by them. That's what civility is. Civility, and I would say convicted civility, is what Jesus shows towards sinners. It's the glory with which he humbled himself 
even though he did know it all. And he came alongside of human beings full of both truth and grace, and in so doing, won many people over to the kingdom of God. Beloved, more than 230 years ago now, a diverse group of people landed on these shores, and they kept coming. And they began to scratch out an existence on this land, and it led them into conflict with each other, not surprisingly. It was not this utopian ease that that we might imagine. But they found a way to come together. They found a way to hammer out a new charter. And though their many differences could so easily have divided them and destroyed the project they were on before it really got going, they chose instead to focus on what they had in common and to, and to hang on to each other and not lose that common ground. They had this holy conviction that all men were created equal. And that despite all of the surface differences, we were on that same ground of having been given the grace of life. All men created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They ultimately enshrined in a constitution and then in a bill of rights the vision of an unusually civil society. This was going to be an unusually civil society, convicted but civil. It would be one with due process, with mutual respect, with checks and balances designed to advance the common good. And you and I are the heirs of that. We're the heirs of those founders. As we are, as followers of Jesus, in a much deeper sense, the heirs of the greatest founder, of the one whose kingdom agenda undergirded the vision of many of those first Americans. At stake today, at stake today, is whether that grand experiment shall continue. And people think that our greatest problems are whether we'll be able to compete with China or what we'll do with the Muslim world or whether the Cubs will eventually win. But I tell you that our greatest problem, our greatest challenge, and our greatest opportunity is whether we can live as a people with convicted civility. To recover and refresh the dream is going to require humility, courage, sacrifice, and compromise that will be a stretch for all of us. Please, let this convicted civility be the passion in our homes and in our churches and in our neighborhoods and in our golf shops, in our workplaces and our government. Let's become, again, a people of both truth and grace. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we thank you for the amazing gift of the people around us. 
even those whose very different opinions tests our character. And grant us, O God, the capacity to live with that truth and conviction and that grace and civility by which your people have been set apart, dedicated to your purposes, salt in this earth and light in this world, And so, surrounded by these great witnesses, let us also run our race with perseverance that we may bring glory to your name, blessing to this world, and joy, and joy to our own lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.